Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, guest hosting for Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. You'd be hard-pressed to find an architect or design professional who believes their clients understand and will pay for the true value of design. As part of our series called Designing Value, we'll be talking to leading thinkers about how we define and communicate the value of design to provide actionable insights to apply in practice. Our guest today is Daryl Condon. Daryl has been with HCMA Architecture out of Vancouver for over 20 years and currently serves as its managing principal. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, he talks about what drew him to architecture, the core motivator and purpose at HCMA, and the changing value proposition of the profession and how best to respond. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Daryl Condon, Managing Principal of HCMA, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, we really appreciate you accepting our invitation. You are part of a series that we're doing on designing value. And the central question is, how does design create value? in both theoretical and practical ways, and how can firms not only enhance the way that they create value, but also how they tell the story of that value and how they, let's just say, reclaim some of that value. So before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about your backstory. Tell us about what first inspired you to become an architect. You know, it's interesting. I'm one of those, um, those people, I think, that, you know, from a very young age, I was fascinated by the the drawings and the artifacts and the and the tools of architecture I became really interested in in blueprints and in drafting technologies and things as a kid and when I was quite young and I just became fascinated uh, with buildings through through the drawings of buildings and from a very young age uh, felt that that was a, a path for me and it's turned out to <laughs> Uh, to be true, it's turned out to be for me uh, an incredibly uh, fulfilling and uh, journey. You know, it, it uh, I feel very privileged and grateful for, for for what I get to do every day. So you really knew that this was the path for you, even when you were a teenager. Yeah, it, it was before then. I mean, all through uh, high school, uh, in those sort of formative years, I had my sights set on architecture. I actually started. Uh, university in engineering, uh, but very quickly realized that um, that wasn't the right path for me and uh, sort of got back onto the path I had been on and uh, shifted into architecture uh, quite quickly. So what did you do after you graduated from school? Did you go right into the profession or did you do something else first? I graduated in the uh, late 80s at a time when the was relatively prosperous for the profession. I was able to work as a student, and and that was really important. And I, um, like many, travel was it was a really important part of my my education. Uh, and when I graduated uh, from architecture school at McGill in, in Montreal, I, I went to Europe and spent quite a bit of time traveling and experiencing uh, European cities and and architecture. And settled in London and worked in London for. The better part of a year, um, and uh, and then continued my journeys and my travels before returning to Canada, where I um, settled back and, and started the process of, of uh, registration. So tell us the story about how you came to HCMA. So I moved to Vancouver in 
early 1990s. I'm not from the west coast of Canada, um, but I was always drawn to it, and I and I felt a synergy with the context and the landscape and and the sort of sensibility of the place. And uh, so moved here in the early 90s and um, started working uh, at another firm. Uh, actually, was there for about a year and a half. Felt it wasn't the right fit for me and um, uh, sought out and joined predecessor firm of of HCMA where you know where I suspected I would I would find better alignment with my my sensibilities my sense of purpose and my priorities uh, in practice and so I joined the predecessor firm to HCMA in 1994 my journey then continued uh, with that firm we went through a, a few different iterations uh, and I became a partner in the firm in the year I think in 2000 uh, and have uh, really made my made my practice at HCMA uh, since that time. So, what was that that sense of purpose that you spoke about earlier? Like, what what is that sensibility, and what what is it that you were looking for, maybe culturally in a firm or or in the values of a firm? You know, it's it's interesting because you know at the time I wasn't as intentional or I wasn't as clear on that. Um, I was really focusing on a firm that I, I respected from a design perspective and from a design focused perspective. I joined a firm that had, you know, great track record and a great portfolio of projects doing really meaningful community projects at, at a very, very high level. And that that appealed to my uh, my sensibility and my interest in in the design aspects of of architecture and it was really only over time that followed that the sort of broader range of my interest and passions through through architecture became clearer to me and uh, and that emerged uh, as stronger influences uh, in in both my practice and in HCMA and uh, yeah at the time it it just wasn't as clear to me what you know what those what the really underlying ambitions I had uh, for practice, but when I look back on them, I can see that they were there. Um, I just, I wasn't, I uh, wasn't able to see them with the clarity that I that I'm able to see them, you know, from from this perspective. Right, hindsight helps. Exactly. Yep. So HCMA is involved mostly with community-based uh, projects, right? Yeah, I would say that certainly the vast majority of our work I would describe as for public sector clients, although. You know, private sector work has always been part of what we we do as well. It hasn't formed the majority of our our practice. So the majority of our our practice is for public sector clients, uh, institutions, local governments, school districts, universities, clients that see architecture uh, as an integral part of their public service, and that's that's really where the strongest uh, alignment lies for us, and where our philosophy. Uh, has has emerged. Well, how would you describe your philosophy? I mean, that's something that's always struck me about both you and the firm is that there's there is a strong sense of purpose and there is a philosophy about why you practice architecture and how you practice it and how you you look at what architecture does in its impact on communities. Yeah, I mean, we consider ourselves a purpose-based organization um, and you know, our purpose is to maximize the positive impact that we have on the communities we serve, and this this clarity for us um, has emerged through experience, through seeing the results of what we do, and feeling 
the energy of the things that are hard to define and hard hard to measure seeing the social performance and seeing the seeing the benefits that a well-designed community facility can have uh, on a community and its capacity that has become the core motivator for us is is to really help communities flourish uh, and and flourish in the full extent of what that might mean and and so our philosophy our approach really has come from that place and and, and the the work we're doing is to be more and more intentional about how we can create the maximum benefit to the communities we serve and through through the physical aspects of our design through the design strategies and the way that we implement buildings but also through how we work and and the way that we can leave a legacy of of community capacity through our processes or through through the policies that we we help shape uh, and through how we behave uh, as a firm. So we look at all the various opportunities that are available to us to to influence uh, and encourage positive outcomes uh, in the community. So the the way that HCMA tries to create value is multi-layered. You know, it's not just the product or the object, if you will, but it's also the process. And each of these has an opportunity to create value for the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the possibilities of process is something that I think very few architects pay enough attention to. Certainly something that we've recognized a lot of power in. And I can just give you a couple of really simple, tangible examples. But I had a project about um, 15, 20 years ago. It's a community center project. And we established a, a community advisory group. And then through the process, shared with them different models of community governance, helped to create a nonprofit society, uh, and helped to empower that that nonprofit society to operate and uh, that facility in partnership with, with the local government. Now, fast forward 15 years later, that's an incredibly vibrant uh, not-for-profit organization that operates a number of facilities you know, brings in a tremendous level of support from the community, both in terms of uh, volunteerism and donations and so on. Um, but that that organization would not exist if it hadn't been for the work we did through the design process to create it and and to and to empower it. And uh, so it's an example of that the building itself has a tremendous legacy, but the process also has a tremendous legacy. And uh, so it's it's a, I guess a really it's one of many examples I could share around when you're when you're thinking intentionally about the other types of legacies you can leave, that they can have lasting uh, impacts that, and in some cases, might even go beyond uh, the the building that that you're you're designing for that community. Absolutely. So what you did was in that situation is you came in and you you enabled the community to do more for itself. In other words, you gave it new capabilities. In some ways, it reminds me of what some of the early work that Mass Design Group uh, had done in Rwanda, where they went in and they said, yeah, we'll we'll create this healthcare environment, but we're going to do so with local tradespeople and materials. And they actually went in and had a program to train people in various trades that were needed in order to complete the construction. So they went in and, with the idea that the process of construction was going to enhance what the community could do for itself. It sounds like you have a very uh, kindred spirit with that, 
but some of your other processes, maybe of just community engagement, are doing something similar. Absolutely. I, I think you know capacity and, and building capacity in a community, regardless of, of where it is and size uh, or, or its context, the capacity of a community to help uh, take care of itself, to be resilient, to be responsive to, to change is is critical. And I, I really I'm operating from a standpoint of, of a deep belief in our ability to help build community capacity. And I've seen it firsthand in, in many, many different ways. And I think certainly in the recent past, we've learned as well that when we're working, for instance, with our First Nations clients, that we can we can build capacity within uh, those communities through how we work that is really meaningful and, and that also uh, provides significant benefit to, to the community. And, and you know, virtually any community that one works in, we can leave a legacy of greater capacity. And I think that has to be something that we're we're talking about. It has to be something that we are uh, intentional about, uh, and something that we're challenging ourselves to be better at from from project to project. And it's just not a subject that gets enough discussion in in my mind. And and you know, I think Mass Design Group is a great example of of an organization that that also believes that and also looks for those those opportunities through through their projects and and yeah I feel a great uh, affinity and synergy with for that uh, for that mindset uh, as well so is this approach where you're actually you know using the design process to build capability within a community to enhance the community just by the process even the beginning parts of the process is this something that clients get is this you know, a new idea to them, or is this something that's easy to sell in? I think they do get it. I think, you know, again, we work primarily with local governments and public sector organizations that are providing a public service, and they are deeply embedded in those conversations about capacity and about empowering the community and, and, and working with with the community. And so they may not come to the conversation understanding how, as an architect or through through how we're working with them, that that relates to that conversation that they're having. But once you point it out to them, or or once you you know include them in that conversation, uh, they get it right away, and and uh, it, it's a really easy conversation to carry forward. And uh, be, because it is so fundamental to what how they already see their role in serving the communities that that they uh, that they serve. So by the nature of what their organizations do, you know, the the governments or other kinds of community organizations, they already have a predisposition to look at things the way that you do. What about other types of clients? Do you think that your approach is one that could work for, you know, clients in other types of disciplines? Absolutely. And I I wouldn't say that all local government or institutional clients share that priority. And I say the same is true of, say, private sector clients. But, and I'd probably argue that the percentage is is going to be more heavily weighted on the on the public sector. But I can point to many many different private sector clients that that recognize and are inspired and challenging themselves to make these kind of differences in the communities that they that they work in uh, as well. Uh, and I think it's like so many of these things. The clearer you are with your purpose. The more uh, upfront you are about what you believe and what's important and what you're trying to accomplish, your potential clients see that, whether they be public sector or private sector. And in, in some ways, there's a self-selection 
process that the clearer you are with your your purpose, the more likely those values aligned uh, clients are, are are going to find you or that you'll you'll be able to to find them. And uh, you know we certainly enjoy those types of conversations with with private sector clients as well though. you know it's not limited to just public sector clients but but for us it comes from that foundation and but but it's not exclusive to that uh, type of work. Well, it seems that it's important for HCMA or any organization who has you know your kind of approach or a kind of approach that requires a cultural match with clients. It's important for, the firm to communicate what it's about, to have that very much publicly available so that clients or prospective clients can kind of self-select. Absolutely. You know, it's critical. When you look at the challenges that exist within the profession of architecture and the, you know, increasing commoditization of our services and, you know, pressures on fees and so on, the worst thing we can do is, is provide a generic service. Because there's always going to be somebody who can do it cheaper, you know, and clients will go to that, right? If if we're providing the same thing as everyone else, why would somebody come to you, right? But if you're offering something more, if you're offering a stronger set of beliefs or a, uh, a stronger set of outcomes as a result of those beliefs, then presumably you will be more attractive to those clients that recognize the value in that. You know, and and maybe aren't going to just race to the bottom on fee or on process or on other aspects. I think, regardless of your purpose, you know, it it doesn't have to be a socially a social performance purpose like like ours. Any purpose, the clearer you are, and your ability to to lead with that, I think, is going to be fundamental to to a firm's success. And it's certainly something that we've come to experience and really really believe. Um, you know, I don't think it's unique to our our industry as well. I think it's it's what I think many are experiencing in the world of business and in the world of, of certainly in service industries uh, today. Yeah, one of the things that I see out there uh, is firms creating a lot of value uh, in their process, but giving that away as kind of a loss leader to getting the design project. Is that a model that you feel pressured into, or do you do it a different way at HCMA? Well, I think, you know, I would say we're in transition, where I think, like many firms and many of us, um, I think in the past, we have we've been focused on the on the on the big prize, right? On the prize of the project that and and many other aspects of what we do um, are we're, we're about positioning yourself for that. But I would say our mindset is shifting, and we're actively trying to shift the center of gravity of our work uh, more and more into the areas of policy development and uh, establishing the conditions for for projects. And for and that's for a number of reasons. And and and. Partly, uh, well, first and foremost, it's driven by a belief that that's where we can have our greatest impact. And, and as, a, as I've said, we're an impact-driven organization, and it's becoming increasingly challenging to have impact through traditional the traditional project life cycle, given the pressures on time and the pressures on different delivery methodologies and all of the things that, that, that we see and others see in, in the challenges of project delivery. And so we're finding much more fertile 
ground outside of the traditional project life cycle. And, and those are those, ser- those areas, those services that maybe in the past we, we saw as a lost leader, as a way to, a, to you know, position yourself for, for the, the big prize. But increasingly, I look at that big prize and I, and I, and I say, is that really the prize uh, we think it is? Yes, you get to design the building, but you know, increasingly it's becoming so challenging to, to deliver it. And it's, I guess, we're just finding that our ability to have maximize our impact um, starts earlier than the traditional life cycle. And the more we can focus outside the traditional life cycle, the, the greater, the disproportionate impact we can have through our efforts. So do you see the business model of HCMA changing? Let's say the value proposition of the firm? Well, I would say it, it better. <laughs> um, I think... Uh, because I think the the whole value proposition of architecture is is changing and and threatened, and if we don't change in anticipation of those threats and of those pressures, uh, we'll be swamped by them. So I, I firmly believe that the profession needs to embrace a different value proposition, and we are actively on that journey and seeking seeking to define and to better to better understand that. I think the. the Holding on to a view from the past of what we do and its value, uh, I think, is putting us in in jeopardy and um, is is not where we need to be. And so we are actively shifting our understanding of that value proposition, and um, and that will be an ongoing process. But um, we simply can't stand still. That, that's that's something I believe very very strongly, and it's. Uh, it's it's really core to how um, certainly how I'm leading the firm and how I'm driving change. Well, it's not just leading the firm, right? I mean, you're also involved in a graduate program, correct? Yeah, I'm currently in a uh, cre- completing a doctorate program where I am exploring these very issues, where I'm exploring how to uh, respond to what I see is the overwhelming, increasing commoditization of our of our services and uh, of architecture generally. And so I'm investigating new approaches to how to position the incredibly vital skill set and approach and and way of working that architects uh, possess and looking at, at how we might better serve society by expanding our understanding and, and our, the range of influence that that we have. And so, yeah, I'm using the the doctorate uh, program is a way of of challenging myself to think more deeply about these issues and to imagine and design a new practice model that will, I think, be responsive to the to the challenges and the changes that are upon us and that are ahead of us as well. So, paint a picture for us. I mean, I understand that you're in the midst of this process, but from where you stand today, both in practice and, you know, in your academic studies. What does what does the changing environment look like, and how is it that the profession of architecture needs to change, especially relative to how it creates value? Well, it's a big question, and I would say that maybe the way I'll I can answer it is to is to make a reflection on what I see too uh, prevalent in in the profession, and you know when you get a group of architects together, you know at a conference or dinner party or wherever it might be, uh, we've all been in those conversations and you hear all of the challenges and all of the things that that people are are facing. 
and all of the complaints and criticisms of of and and fundamentally what people are saying is you know people don't respect us anymore how come we can't go back to a different way how come there there's this desire to have society come to us and i think there's a fundamental flaw in that that you know society's needs are changing and they're changing for reasons that we may not always like or necessarily agree with from our perspective but they're changing for reasons that are that are relevant and that they're they're powerful forces of change and and so i guess i believe that we will have a much brighter future if we understand and accept and work with those forces of change what's an example delivery methodologies for instance mm-hmm. You know the time, the time pressures, the time constraints. We're we're all you know we're seeing that the 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 pressures to deliver faster, cheaper, and in a more integrated way uh, is been driven by a societal need for for projects to be delivered that way. You know, um, there's cost and time and lots of reasons, right? But the new methodologies that are emerging are not emerging from architects. They're emerging through from clients. They're emerging from contractors. They're emerging from engineers. They're emerging from a different set of priorities, typically, and we're trying to adapt to them. and And in many respects, we're resisting them. And I think that's that's a really dangerous stance to have. The reason that there's a, a need for new delivery methodologies is because the existing ones haven't necessarily served society very well. And um, so for us to resist those forces of change is is really dangerous. And yet too often we're I think we're guilty of of wanting to hold on to a way of working that was was relevant once, uh, still relevant to some degree, but is becoming less relevant moving moving forward. So the danger is that we lose touch. And when we lose touch, we can't really connect with what people need and find a way to fill that need in a way that gets the result that we and everybody else would really love. I mean, ab- absolutely. You know, we, and I'm generalizing here, but I, I think that the profession is guilty of seeing what we do as an inherent right or as an inherent value and losing sight of what, that, that we operate and that we, the privilege we have of, of a protected scope of practice is a social contract. And it's it's a flexible social contract. It's not a it's not a rigid one. And the moment at which society feels there's a better way to meet its needs in the built environment, that social contract will be broken. And you know, there's a certain amount of elasticity to that, but it's being stretched. And you know, we see all sorts of there's all sorts of examples uh, of the evidence of that stretching. I mean, we could talk at length about about the issues of of prefabrication and what the implications are for practice and why that is a sign of the stretching of that social contract. And, you know, you, if you can imagine shifting into a more fully, a more prefabricated mode, a more product design uh, methodology, that there's a fundamental shift in professional responsibility in that, right? That, that, that take that to the to its conclusion and the implications on that social contract are are really significant and so that's just one example I, I could point to to many others the examples are there if we're paying attention if we're looking for them and if we're seeing the signs and recognizing them for what 
for what they are. If we're looking backwards into a mythical way of that practice was, and I would argue that it's never been perfect. It's never been without its challenges. But you know, too often we're guilty of looking backwards, uh, longing for a different way of practice when really we need to be looking forward and embracing change and embracing a different way for us to be applying our skill set. That that's what's going to ensure our relevance, and that's that's where our value will will increase uh, because the relevance and the you know uh, how we're responding to the needs uh, of the future is, is what is going to ensure. The value of 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 our of our services. So as the world changes and the needs of society change, doesn't it put a burden back on us to continually engage and reframe and uh, re-explain the way that we create value? I mean, don't we always have to be in the process of earning the place at that table? Yeah, I think I think we do. I think I think we have to first of all be open to it. We have to be open to challenging ourselves first of all to to re-examine our value and re-examine our role uh, and then we need to be confident in that to be able to assert ourselves in those in, in those conversations and to you know position ourselves and demonstrate that that value you know there's nothing more powerful than a demonstration of one's one's value and uh, if, if people experience that value that they're going to be your greatest advocate you know and uh, they're certainly going to be willing to to compensate you appropriately for it. Well, how, as a practical matter, do you at HCMA go about trying to uh, explain what the value is of what you do to get the client to understand that value and to recoup some of the value that you're creating? It starts by trying to be really authentic in every way, everything that we do. And through through the various initiatives and, and programs that we operate and the way we talk, the way we communicate, the way we behave as an organization, first of all, demonstrate the, those values, the value and the values uh, that go with it in in how we how we behave. And I think that it has to start with that. and and then we need to find different ways to tell those stories. We need to we need to use, the full range of, of possible means of, of sharing those stories. And, and I used the word authentic before. I think for us, that's an important aspect of how we share our stories, at least how we try to always share our stories. And that we do a lot of things that are firm that are a little different than, than most firms. And, um, and sometimes, you know, people might from the outside look at us and say, well, oh, you're doing that for attention. You're doing that for marketing purposes or what have you. And I understand that criticism, that critique. Um, and I guess what my response to that is that what we do, we do to challenge ourselves. We do to make us better, to challenge ourselves, to see the world differently, uh, and to hold ourselves accountable. And as long as what we're doing and the stories we're telling are connected to that challenge and that desire to learn, then the stories remain authentic. And, you know, there's lots of cynicism in our profession, um, and I understand that, uh, and I'm not bothered by it. But I, I, I just firmly believe in in, in our path and, uh, and our purpose. And uh, so as long as the stories are authentic, then I have no problem sharing them. And now some might feel that's marketing. 
And currently, there's a marketing aspect, but that doesn't mean the initiative was a marketing initiative. It just means that there's we feel there's value in sharing our story. And, and in sharing the story, you're describing who you are, you're describing what you believe, you're letting that client know what they're going to experience in you, how we will work with them, where we will challenge them, and, and what we're hoping to learn from them as well. And that's all an important part of just being in a situation where the values that we have with our clients align, and therefore the value that comes from our processes uh, is uh, is maximized. Absolutely. So, Daryl, in a lot of our conversation so far, you've talked about both values and value. And it seems like there's a strong interrelationship between those for you at HCMA. How does that work? I talk a lot about that that interrelationship between value and and values and it, for me it's a very versatile vehicle uh, to to talk about lots of different issues of of practice it's easy for for architects to talk about the value that they provide the value that they add to a a, a site or a property or, or or situation but we're really not very good about talking about the values that we are applying and that we are bringing to that endeavor. And there's a preoccupation, I guess, with value in terms of dollar signs, um, when really it's the values that we're bringing to these efforts, the values that are shaping the outcomes of our work that are really most important to the legacy we leave in the communities and the impact that we're we're having within them. So when I, when I talk about that interrelationship between value and and values, in many ways, it's a call to action or, or uh, yeah, a rally cry to challenge us and to, and to hopefully encourage others to, to pay more attention uh, and be more intentional around their values. Uh, and it's also important to say that it's not just for value's sake. It's, you know, I, I believe that the stronger we are and the clearer we are and the more we lead with our values, the more value we will create as well, because the more impactful the work uh, products uh, will be. And so by shifting our focus from value to values, we actually create more value, um, which is which is a nice kind of a reciprocal uh, relationship. But I think if we focus on, on what we believe and on what society needs, um, there's just the full range of benefits accrue from that. And, uh, and it certainly makes our work and our, our professional lives uh, more meaningful uh, as well. And I think goes a long way to helping us respond to all of the challenges we're facing uh, in, perhaps not all the challenges, but certainly uh, many of the challenges that we're, we are facing and, and, you know, create as a leader, that's, that's my job. My job as a firm leader is to, is to steer this firm forward in a way that creates the maximum benefit to our clients and the and the brightest future for all of us that are that are here and 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 so passionate uh, about what we do and and I've just come to understand and just firmly believe that values uh, and leading with them is just an absolutely critical part of of all of that. Well, it's so essential. And in conversations I've had with firms, a lot of them talk about being a values-driven organization as though it is something that is out of reach or maybe not 
practical in the marketplace. But what I think HCMA has shown us for years is that that's absolutely not true. Uh, in the way that you just described, strong values create value both for clients and communities and inside the firm. I understand that fear. Uh, and I and I had I felt that fear, and I was maybe driven by that fear earlier uh, in my leadership of the firm. But I can say with absolute certainty that when we got clear on our purpose, and when we got clear on our values, and we led with those values, it's been transformational for our firm, and our firm is much stronger now as a result of a commitment to that than we were as trying to be all things to all and, and not and be afraid to really be assertive about who we who we are. And so I, I just firmly believe that our success is driven by the clarity of our purpose and our commitment to leading with our values. I hope others can learn from that and, and can gain confidence to really understand and assert their own values. They won't be ours. They'll be theirs. And, and I think it'll drive their success as well. Well, that's fantastic, and it's a wonderful bar that all of us in the professions can hold ourselves to, and I hope that we do. Daryl, thanks so much for coming on This is Design Intelligence and sharing the story of HCMA with us. Well, it's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to, to when our paths might cross in the future. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.